0: Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr, an organic corn grower from the Okanagan Valley and the show's current host. What you're about to listen to is a re-release of an episode originally produced for the 2022 BC Organic Conference. I hope you enjoy it! Hey everyone, this is the last planned episode for this year's conference podcast series, but it was the first one I knew I wanted to produce when I was contracted to do the series. 2021 was a really challenging year to be a farmer in this province. And so even before the terrible floods of late November, I knew I wanted to record a few farmers reflecting on the experience of dealing with chaotic weather and climate last year. I myself had some terrible setbacks last season that had me feeling pretty demoralized before I was even halfway through it. Owning a farm can feel pretty solitary, even if you have employees which I think can exacerbate the impact that all this weather chaos is having on our mental health. So I guess my aim with this episode was to emphasize the point that we're going through this stuff together, even if it doesn't feel like it when it's happening. You're about to hear five farmers talk about the weather last season. Six, actually, since one of them ended up interviewing me about my farm. I think that's all you need to know. I'll talk to you at the end. So Chris Bodner, maybe you could remind the 1% of listeners who don't know you uh, about you and your farm, and then just uh, tell us a little bit about what your 2021 season was like starting in the spring.
1: Uh, Yeah, my name is Chris Bodner, and I operate close to home organics in Abbotsford at Glen Valley Organic Farm. Um, And our 2021 season was uh, pretty intense in terms of having a really early the early heat dome coming in in the beginning of June or end of June. And uh, I think that also set a little bit of fear in our hearts as to what the rest of the summer was going to be like. And we definitely had some intense hot periods after that as well, going right through into the fall. And then just a really intense wet season starting in the fall and uh, culminating in, Really, uh, really, really wet <laughs> a couple of weeks in November here where we're dealing with the ramifications of that in farmland that's been flooded and parts of the province that are um, devastated and transportation corridors cut off and uh, just a really, really um, dramatic end to the year.
0: How many seasons have you been farming, roughly?
1: This, this was my 15th season farming,
0: could you situate the year that you just described against you know the average or or your experience in those fifteen years?
1: I think as the like as the time has progressed over the fifteen years, we've had a few points where alarms start to go off in our minds as to what we're seeing. Um, and the first the first one was the the time. In 2016 when it hit 30 degrees in the last week of April and uh, that was really shocking and it's a time when normally we're able to transplant and not have to worry so much about irrigation and all of a sudden it wasn't just about getting irrigation set up as we're transplanting but some days not being able to transplant and then having having increasing frequency of smoke uh coming in in the summer and then starting to see indications of real extremes happening um where like in in 2020 we had one point going into september where the forecast was for the temperature to reach 40 degrees and the only reason that didn't happen was because of the massive cloud of smoke that came up from the us that essentially blotted out the sun for two weeks and reduce the temperatures and it the crazy part of that is that we've seen clues as things have gotten more dramatic over the last number of years in that we can't predict what the season is going to be like based upon what it has been like Um, but also where like one extreme didn't quite happen as it was predicted because something else extreme happened that sort of blotted that out and so I uh, like the idea that we would consider ourselves lucky that it didn't, didn't get up to 40 degrees because uh, a, a smoke cloud came in that essentially made it uh, difficult or even unhealthy to breathe outside for a period of time that that was somehow a reprieve is crazy but this year I think we just had like these underlined incidents that say no like things things are changing and this is a real challenge and people need to wake up and particularly um like looking at the the spectrum of how things have changed and what discussions we've been having as farmers and understanding what the increasing challenges are that we need levels of government also to actually step up and recognize that these are these are huge Like it's not just giving lip service to it. It's actually something needs to be figured out.
0: So Chris, maybe take us, I I mean, I really, from, from what you've said so far, it sounds like we're going to focus on that heat dome in terms of the, the, you know, major crisis in the, at least in the main part of the season in 2021. But so I, I, before I get you to talk about the, the heat dome itself, um, was it a normal season leading into that heat dome or, or were you experiencing any other major kind of challenges that went against, you know, an average season?
1: For us, uh, because we farm on the, uh, on the floodplain of the Fraser River, we were definitely keeping a close eye on the snowpack in that we had a little bit above average snowpack in B.C. last winter due to the large snowfall that had happened and the cold temperatures that kept the snowpack a little bit longer. And so we definitely saw um, the challenge of uh, basically like a more erratic melt when you get, we had some warmer temperatures early that caused the um, freshet to happen early and then cools off and then it happens again, like really dramatic temperatures going into June that can bring up the the it. So we were definitely watching with close eyes, and um, not that that that's normal in terms of what what the river is going to do during that period and what precipitation what precipitation will do. I think I think we were fairly confident that things were going okay um, for the first part of the season, and then when we saw the forecast going into the last bit of June, uh, that's maybe when our eyes bugged out of our heads and we we're like, whoa what's going on here
0: well let's let's jump to that last bit of june then chris um i guess i'll start so i mean most people listening are aware that that bc experienced this this heat dome um this this high pressure system of extreme heat especially for the time of year but even independent of the time of year um that that stuck around for uh five to seven days at its most serious um so i i guess my first question is i mean it was forecast at least by a few days how prepared were you for it or how seriously did you take it
1: well we we did take it seriously I mean we saw it coming and we realized that we needed to talk to our staff about how we were actually going to get work done and so we we moved our start time in the day earlier and we finished earlier but I think the I think that the the thing that really struck us was that the forecast was for temperatures that we haven't experienced before in terms of what we do uh, in our work. And the, there's one side of like trying to keep plants alive and wondering like what is going to happen in different, different scenarios with the actual growing. But the big thing that we all of a sudden realized was how do we keep people safe and Going into that heat, like there was really nothing available to us as a farmer. Like when we were trying to figure out, so what do we do from a work safe perspective? Like, what, how do we determine when it's too hot for someone to work? And we realized that there was just nothing out there to provide those guidelines. Like we ended up, we were looking at guidelines from Ontario and then from Australia, where they actually have criteria to figure out how whether it's safe to work or not. And it wasn't until we were right in the middle of the worst part of the heat dome that WorkSafe actually came out and made a statement. But it's sort of like everyone was caught off guard, like no one thought it was actually going to get that bad. And then once we were in the worst of it, everyone starts scrambling to um to provide some information. And so we we felt at the start of it that we were really on our own in trying to figure out how to make this work like from a safe safety point of view and I think that because we took it seriously and because we planned for it we made some good choices that um instilled confidence in our employees that they realized we weren't going to ask them to do something silly um that we were going to take health and safety really seriously um but it but it also was frustrating because like this is really what we we've known for a while that these erratic temperatures are going to become increasingly frequent and so on and we realized that That from a planning point of view, it seems like a lot of, um, a lot of the resources that should have been there weren't. And that's, that was frustrating.
0: In the end, absent, like the kind of guidance that you would have hoped for. I mean, did you ultimately just, uh, I mean, you say you set your, your work start and ends differently. Did you also just give flexibility and choice to your staff to let them decide what they could handle?
1: yeah i I mean that ultimately we realized that um what we were going to get done in a day was probably not going to be what we would normally expect to get done in a day at the end of june um when we're dealing with these nice long days and and so on and that if people are going to feel sick from being outside like that we don't want that to happen so um we yeah i mean just in, in terms of working with everyone to say what like what works for you for a start time. And um, and then we can find things to do that are not outside in the direct heat later in the day, if that's what we need. Or if people just need to work a half day, then that's good as well. Um, so we we adjusted as necessary and uh, we got through it. And and that, so that that was fine in that, in that regard. It was just, I think, at the beginning of June, or sorry, not at the beginning of June. When we look at this happening at the end of June, we were just constantly asking like, oh no, are we gonna have to deal with this repeatedly throughout the summer? Um, Because that would have been the really exhausting part of it. And we didn't have to deal with it getting up to that temperature, but we certainly dealt with a number of hot, uh, like above what we would normally expect to be normal um, temperature periods. did make it really difficult for everyone to get through on an ongoing basis
0: so chris horticulturally or production wise um what were the biggest challenges around this heat dome um i mean
1: we repeatedly had entire plantings of lettuce that just bolted um and so like we would we we seed and we plant lettuce every week and we had periods at the beginning of summer where i mean three weeks worth of lettuce came on all at once because the heat starting up and then we had three weeks worth of lettuce that bolted all at once and so that like the lettuce that you can't that all comes on at the same time you end up picking one week's worth and the rest is wasted and then the next three weeks that all bolted is all wasted and so like every time one of those happened you're just looking at like oh well there's another another five thousand dollars worth of lettuce that's not harvestable so that was that was always disappointing and then um like we definitely saw like entire uh fruit sets in the in the greenhouse with our tomatoes um empty from those from those weeks and so we had like two really nice um fruit sets early on uh and then we had two weeks or two, two fruit sets from the, the period of the, the heat in June that were empty. And then a couple in July, another set empty later on from heat later in July. And so it was just there was nothing we could do with shade cloth or anything because the ambient temperature was like 40, 42 degrees. And so, yeah, those those flowers are going to be sterile um, and not set and same thing with the cucumbers. Like, just we we saw big gaps in production based upon things that bolted or uh, fruit that never set. Um, and we were fortunate in that we um, were able to avoid scald on on the fruit that had set using shade cloth. So that was that was okay. Um, we saw other things like our carrots, our onions, all uh, came through in pretty good. Uh, looking like, in pretty good shape so um so there's like some things that worked well that weren't as impacted and that we didn't have to worry about so much um and then like definitely we have a small orchard uh saw a lot of a lot of damaged fruit there based on this based upon the weather so it it had like some of it was it's like this uh everyone's relieved when the temperature goes down after an event like that. And that's when you start to look around and say, okay, so what What was really the impact longer term that's gonna hit us financially through the season? And that's when you start to see, oh yeah, these, plant, these, these plantings aren't gonna mature or they're bolting or we don't have any fruit set here. And uh, that's when you start to add up the impact. And that also, it's harder to explain to people because everyone's sort of moved on in their minds. Later in the summer, it's like, oh, well, the temperature's okay now. And why don't you have this? You normally have this, and like, well, we don't have it because of June. Remember what happened back then? And they're like, really? That that has, that 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 was the lasting impact. And so it's hard to sometimes really get people to understand the like the season-long ramifications of what of what happened.
0: And in broad strokes, if you don't want to go into too much detail, how what did what impact, if any, did this did that period have financially on your operation?
1: Well, I think that like based upon what our projections were and uh, what actually came in, like when I look at the lettuce that we lost and the weeks that we didn't have tomatoes, um, and uh, yeah, some of those some of those larger areas like is definitely in the realm of like $50,000 in revenue that we weren't able to achieve because of that. And so that that's a that's a significant hit like in terms of being able to manage the labor and so on that that we had hired to to see those crops through.
0: So Chris I'm I'm really interested to ask you you know if we just if we anticipate you know, if we look ahead to say just next year and that the potential for another event like this heat dome happening again, what what did you learn? What I'm, I, I'm interested in teasing apart what you learned and could adjust versus what um, what you really can't change and, and to what extent you just have to suffer through, you know, like, yeah, let's just start with what what you learned going through this heat dome and, and how that what what you would change headed into next June.
1: I think that um, one of the things that I learned was that crops that have been really reliable on the West Coast, such as greens, are going to be more of a challenge in hot months going forward. And so that I may, whereas head lettuce, if you choose heat resistant varieties that you generally can have good production through the summer. In the past, we might have lost one planting to bolting. uh, That that might be a bit more challenging. And so some of those crops may we may look at as more shoulder season crops. um, As opposed to uh, staying away from or like staying away from them in the middle of the summer instead. Um, I think that. uh, Like we used to we used to count on there being one week of fairly hot weather, usually around the end of July, beginning of August. And <clears throat> I think that you know, we would, going forward, anticipate having more hot periods and just knowing what that means with our with our staff, like what the expectations are that we're setting when we're hiring as far as what an early start might look like um, during a significant portion of the summer versus, uh, having to like do a really early start for a short period of time um and so, so in some instances that might be might be similar to growers in other parts of the province that deal with hot temperatures more regularly that we haven't had to deal with on the coast quite as much um, where where it does become a bit of a, a struggle like being on the floodplain that we're on is anticipating, like, what does the mix look like in terms of what what can we do for early season crops? What do we need to not attempt going into the summer when we have the risk of flooding versus uh, the risk of heat? Um, And then what do we do for late season? So I think some of the choices that we have made um, thus far in trying to diversify into more um, summer planted, fall harvested crops um, have the potential to uh, to do well um, going forward. So we've put a larger focus on uh, radicchio, for example, which, uh, which works with uh, the varied climate that we're seeing um, and uh, trying to focus on what we can do, like for crops that are maybe not as affected by the heat. So looking at the onions, squashes, mm-hmm uh things like that that have storage potential um and i think that i guess the other learning that i'm coming to increasingly is to not bite my tongue in situations where we're dealing with a need for focus on climate adaptation um, climate mitigation um, infrastructure costs that there have been question marks at different points in time as to how vocal can you be without um, alienating people who have the potential of making those choices and just realizing increasingly that there is such a negligence on uh, behalf of of politicians, of bureaucrats and um, and the agricultural sector in a larger sense for not taking this seriously earlier and preparing for it and that we need some really bold um thought and leadership to to move forward and that's only going to happen if we demand it
0: you alluded to that earlier as well talking about the need for government to step up and i'm wondering if you have any idea how 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 our our governments at different levels could be stepping up or how they will need to support agriculture in the province in the near term to medium term
1: I think just uh, like it's on multiple levels in that we don't have the capacity for resilience built in. And so we don't have extension services in the province like we don't have um, a formal way of people on the ground figuring out what's working, what's not working and networking farmers together on a coordinated basis to share that knowledge. We don't have investment in infrastructure, and that that was made blatant this month when the diking system in Abbotsford failed. They, we've known for decades that it's not adequate. We have reports written, um, and the price tag on these things is huge. But when we look at the price tag of like half a billion dollars to repair and in, enhance the one diking system in Abbotsford that failed last week versus the billions of dollars in the price tag now in terms of damage, in terms of lost productivity in the agricultural sector alone, not to mention the transportation network that's been decimated in terms of major highways that aren't gonna be even functional for months. Um, And then the human cost, like that we have 500 people who died during the heat wave in June alone. Um, like we need to reframe the way we think of what public investment is. And I think that, I think the really encouraging thing that we see throughout all of this is people step up, like there's a crisis, people are willing to do this and like to, to take the action necessary. And if we frame it in a way, um, that is positive that we can get through this and the role of mutual solidarity like we saw this in the pandemic in what pe- people did what was necessary. Like you even see it this week, the province started rationing fuel, and the number of people who've just chosen not to drive is significant. Like there, there's so little traffic on the road in the lower mainland as a result of that. People will do what's necessary when it's when they when they understand what's at stake, and they see a clear path to what they can do to contribute so that's how like thousands and thousands of livestock were saved when this flooding was happening. People came together to do this. And really, what we need to do as, on a societal level now is learn what's needed. Like what do we need to make decisions about what's safe as far as temperatures to work in? what are what are what do we need in terms of investment in infrastructure? What do we need in terms of understanding research around what are new varieties and what are new growing practices? to adapt to the changing climate. Um, and I think that I think that even from the organic sector, we have examples. Like it was for growing forward too in the federal provincial uh, funding that the organic sector brought climate adaptation to the table because no one was talking about it. Like how do we as an agricultural sector prepare for this? And we've seen now that that wasn't growing forward. It was in the new Canadian Agricultural Partnership uh, four years ago, that started, and hopefully we see a much enhanced version of that in the new cap uh, funding formula going forward. But I think the organic sector has had that on its radar earlier, and not been afraid to talk about it, and it's it's also means that we have research that's already been done over the last decade. We're not starting from scratch. We have we have some of the answers on paper, and we need now to advocate for the funding to actually put those into action. And so uh, we see examples of Farmers for Climate Solutions as a national program that's advocating for this at a federal level. We see uh, organizations, uh, including Farm Folk City Folk, including um, Organic BC, who've been advocating for this on a provincial level. And I think that even though it may have sounded a little bit on the fringes, 10 years ago. I think people recognize how important it is. And the research has underscored that and we have a real potential to provide some leadership on that. And so I think that there's, I think there's a lot of opportunity and I think we have a lot of the tools. It's just how do we make that? Um, How do we roll that out and encourage that public investment on a broader basis?
0: With the increase in uh, unpredictability out in our farm ecosystems because of weather extremes has it ever in recent years ever made you second guess uh staying in farming
1: uh yeah (laughs) there are definitely times when i thought uh that why why am i doing this but i think it would be one thing if i one thing to be confronted with that and to say like I don't enjoy doing this because of one a reason one, two, and three versus this is too huge. And I think that I can make a greater impact on this larger issue or larger system by doing something else. I think that I think that farming we're on the front lines of seeing a lot of this change because we have to deal with it on a daily basis throughout the year and um that if we don't if we don't share our experience and work with this to learn to to develop more resilience in the system like no one else is going to do it uh and it's not like if i go into another sector that climate change and these extremes and weather are going to disappear it's going to be dealing with it on another on another front so in the recognizing the choice i've made for for being here like yeah some days suck some days are not all that fun um but at the same time what else would i be doing what would i rather do and i don't i don't think that there's there are a lot of options in my mind that would be better than this so uh yeah so it's frustrating it's hard to get through but we uh yeah there's a lot there's still a lot of the same benefits in terms of doing this work part of that is just being stubborn and ornery enough that i don't know that anyone else would want to work with me or that i want to work with anyone else on a, on a broader basis so farming is probably the right place to park my skills
0: chris bodner you are a gentleman and a provincial treasure and i want to thank you for lending your voice to this episode
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity to have a conversation.
0: Chris, we're done unless you want to add anything that we didn't talk about or you didn't talk about.
1: I know, but I want to maybe this will be on the podcast. But how did this season impact you?
0: Uh, It was it was tough. I had a tough season. Um, It was extremely exacerbated by all of like the heat dome and the drought. It was the driest season that I've ever gone through to start. And as you referenced, like very early in your talk just now, um, it just, it means so much extra labor given over to irrigation, like when there's other things to be doing in the spring. Mm -hmm. Um, I did a major revamp of about two acres. I went from almost entirely covered in fabric, uh, which I've been doing for years because of a major problem with bindweed. I finally just got disgusted by the fabric and knowing that it's over time, not good for my soil. So I completely revamped it to be, to take what I was like aiming to be a more uh, regenerative approach. So I went, I, I went a little bit more towards less intensive, more extensive. So rows on four foot centers with just single rows of crops with the goal of living pathway in between, living permanent pathway, and then just keeping like mm-hmm. for, for each row, keeping 18 inches cultivated. It was a big project to switch that all over all at once. That was going to be hard even without drought to start the season where Um, suddenly I had a lot, I had, I couldn't rely on rain to help me out with establishing the pathways with so much. And it all just added up to like, I just got behind on managing it. And I had, um, and then, and then once it took a while, maybe you've been through this. Sometimes it takes a while. I mean, I have less experience than you, but it took a while for me to look like really notice that my issue now we're into like June or even late June when the heat dome hit, it was right around then that I started to really conclude, oh, my crops are not getting enough water. Um, And then with the heat dome and and the fact that for the first time on this community farm, we were essentially short on water. It was the first time Mm. it's happened. So I couldn't get the water that I needed to rapidly try and correct. All of this is to say, I had a huge part of my acreage, like just terrible production. And, you know, when that happens, I had to walk past it every day for months. And I just felt like, you know, I felt like it. just the feelings of failure and other feelings were heavy. So, um, there were lots of other, there were a few other bright points in the year. I don't mean to suggest there weren't, but it was tough. It was the toughest year, I think, that I've been in business for myself. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, yeah,
1: that's challenging.
0: Yeah. And And I... I learned a lot right like that's mm-hmm. that's the silver lining um uh i learned a ton you know i i would say I w- just just based on what you you said you were <clears throat> fairly prepared for the heat dome i didn't prepare enough and uh that was so so then i was kind of playing catch up trying to adjust my irrigation approaches and everything but yeah so that part did you
1: find like did you find once like you get to a point in june when you realize you're not getting enough irrigation and things are not going well like makes it hard to stay focused for the rest of the season. Like
0: Oh, I you know, like think
1: it, it would be nice to hit the erase button and start over, but you can't. You just sort of have to make the best of what you've got
0: at that point. Totally. I I mean, I was joking with my staff and friends that like at some point in almost every season, I I get to the point where I'm like I'm ready for this season to be done, I'm ready for a break and and you know, looking looking ahead to next season. <laughs> um, yeah. it's never happened so early. My morale just got killed and um, mm-hmm. so I was like kind of Yeah. Darkly joking about how it was like literally only early July and all I could think about was, you know, when those failures are staring at you and you know, to some degree how to fix them, but you can't do it until next season. Then all I was just obsessing over, like, I just got to get through this crappy season so I can don't have to look at this anymore and fix it for next year. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, uh, when you take the whole season into account, then lots of people did like suffered a lot more than I did but that was my kind of that was a rough part of my year uh I was um yeah it was it was a hard one um but anyway so it goes
1: yeah well I think it's important to acknowledge when things don't go according to plan because it's uh I mean sort of why the dark ram for example becomes cathartic for a lot of people but like to recognize that every season has its challenges and mm-hmm. sometimes it's brutal and there's, there's a challenge to getting through that on oh, it. Like I know that feeling of like when something goes completely sideways at the beginning and it's just like, Oh, and I still have to keep doing this for yeah. not a lot of benefit
0: in the end. <laughs> T- totally. And I mean, most of us, maybe not all of us, I certainly suffer from like deriving self-worth from my farming. And Mm -hmm. so when I see, when I have to look at failure all year, it's, it's, I, I struggle. I really struggle. And the other major part we didn't, you and I didn't get into this in your summary, but it, the extra, the extra hard part, like what adds to it is when you, when you've made commitments to people and even those, generally those people are pretty understanding, it still feels awful to like, like, I felt like I was making excuses to chefs all season you know, we went through the winter and spring with me making my commitments of this and this, and I'm going to have this and this. And then all season it was, Hey, is this ready? Oh no, it's kind of a failure. Oh, what about this? Uh, I don't really have as much as I thought. And that felt terrible too, you know? Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause those are relationships that you value. And
0: I just like, coming. want to come through for people doubting you or yeah. thinking yeah. you're
1: crying wolf or yeah. Anything like that. You
0: know, hi, is that Mike? Yes, it is. Hey, Mike, it's Jordan calling. How you doing? Good, how are you? Pretty good. So we can, um, I've got you for 15 minutes or so.
2: That's still okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Hello, my name is uh, Mike Borosma. Uh, I'm an organic dairy farmer in Armstrong, D.C. Uh, I farm 110 milk cows, and we farm 300 acres with me and my wife, Pauline, and our three daughters. Uh, I'm also a volunteer firefighter in Armstrong um do
0: our conversation i'm just going to ask you to record a quick bio uh 10 to 30 mike seconds, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast
2: you're welcome it's good mike, to be here
0: mike we're, we're talking about we're talking about different farmers experiences of various um kind of intense weather issues in 2021 what what weather challenge do you do you want to focus on
2: uh, well, the extreme drought this summer was pretty bad. Um, yeah, I planted uh some fava beans this year, uh just because the uh soy price and protein prices were so high. Uh so it was feed for my own herd because I typically buy uh soy um from usually it comes from India, but um in the last year I've been trying to source a little bit locally to keep it um a little bit supply better. Um, And I thought this would be a great way to uh, just capture um, something local on my own farm and just benefit from um, doing it myself. And yeah, the, the cash value for myself would be massive, right? So it was a great crop until we got that 40 degrees. And as soon as we got that 40 degrees, it just pretty much killed it.
0: Oh, okay. So like, cause I assume you, you would have planted these, what sometime in April?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was uh end of April. I think I planted middle to end of April.
0: Um, were you, is this, I'm assuming this was an irrigated crop. You weren't just counting
2: on pre- precip? No, it was definitely irrigated. Yeah. All my land is irrigated here.
0: OK, right. And so it was actually it was it was going well. And then we hit late June and this heat dome. And then can you just describe like what like visually what you were looking at as you as the crop went through the heat dome and then afterward?
2: Um. So, yeah, the, the pods were actually just starting to form on the beans or on the on the plant itself. And as that heat came, it kind you didn't really notice it like the first few days. But just as time went along, it just dried up. Like it, yeah, it's, I tried to put some water on afterwards and try and get it to re-go. Um, but yeah, nothing ended up doing anything. So I just ended up cutting it and, and siling it for forage.
0: Okay. And so like what, I don't know how to properly ask the question, but like what, What? so you got some feed out of it. Um probably a bit more work to get that feed but like, and so but what how does the amount of um, volume of feed you ended up getting compared to, to if you had harvested as you intended
2: um as I intended I was hoping to get roughly about 70 tons 70 tons like I said mm-hmm. of um, actual beans um, and then I was gonna hammer them so uh, right now like soy price is about two thousand dollars a ton. Um, so they're probably quite a bit less, maybe maybe $1,500 a ton. So if you do 1500 times 70 tons.
0: Right. Um, um,
2: yeah. And then if I go to the value of, I just mowed it with a conventional mower, uh, disc, disc bind mower. And then I uh, just cut it with a forage harvester. And wow. like it just, it kind of molded a bit in the bunker because it was it was it was so dry and there wasn't anything really there. There was a few beans here and there, but it was either either kind of sticky wet ligniny wet or just complete like sawdust. Mm. So, like the only value I got was a bunch of feed for some uh, young heifers um and then I actually had to add some corn silage to Boosted up a bit because it was so bad, so it was it was pretty much a garbage crop.
0: And does so does that all suggest that you had to um, purchase the soybeans that you were originally hoping to avoid purchasing?
2: Yeah. So now, like I was hoping to have this throughout the whole winter, but I've been buying um, peas now because that's the cheapest protein I can find. But I mean, that's still 800 and something dollars a ton right now, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not even nearly as good as the fava beans would have been.
0: So I'm wondering, like, um, when you look back on the fava crop and it's essentially it's failure, um, is it, did you see the heat dome coming and did you, like, did you do anything in terms of a change to your management of the crop? like, did you increase watering or anything like that? Or, um, did you like, did you kind of miss the boat on, on accommodating the heat dome?
2: Yeah, I tried a little bit, but I think I was too late. Like I tried to put some water on to cool it down, but even, um, a friend of mine, he tried faba beans again for the first time this year too. And he, he just, he lost everything because he was only doing it for the cash value of the crop. So he got no, no value out of it. And it was just, yeah, it was all garbage for him.
0: And, and so did you say before though, that you'll consider trying this again, like this coming season or, or in the future?
2: Um, for the coming season, definitely not because I also suffered a lot of, um, decreased yields in my alfalfa crop um i probably got maybe 50 percent of normal yields just because it couldn't get the water on and the heat just slowed it down so much um but definitely if i have a surplus because this year i'm just suffering like i actually have to buy some hay now um but in the future, if I have a surplus of feed laying around, I would definitely try it again for sure.
0: Right. So it comes down to if you can afford to put the land for future feed um,
2: versus yeah. Because yeah. the previous year I had like I had so much feed. I had my hay sheds full, and I was like, "Well, I'm going to try something different." And I thought, "Well, a high value crop that'll benefit me more actually than than alfalfa, right? Alfalfa hay, just trying to sell it." Um, and then I can use it for my own personal cows here too, right? And rather than making some hay and selling it. So it just makes the circle a bit better.
0: Right. How about your animals through the heat dome? Mike, can you, can you um, talk a little bit about what, what it was like managing the herd and keeping them healthy?
2: Yeah, so the cows, they were actually really good. I was very surprised. Um, We have a creek that runs through our property, and they actually just hung out in the creek, like, all day long. Um, So they, yeah, because they're allowed to go outside and graze. So they, um, during the day, they definitely suffered, but, I mean, compared to um, some conventional herds, um, they did very well. And I was, I was very surprised how well they did. They did better than the faba beans. Yeah. So the biggest thing is just, um, just keeping them happy and cool. Um, so I got some big fans in the barn and in the, in the parlor too, where they get milked. Um, and that definitely kept them quite a bit happier. Um, and just the access outside that helped a lot. Um, but most, Every year, we always plan for the summer, and we always know the heat's coming, but not that extreme heat. But we always anticipate a little downturn in milk yields, especially when they go out to pasture. So that was that's a given. But, I mean, yeah, we did lose a little bit extra milk, but not nearly as much as I expected.
0: Mm. And I guess my last question is just, you've touched on this already a little bit, Mike, but um, what would you what would you do differently if you could go through that period again? And I'm not, not counting, not planting favas, but really what I'm, (laughs) what I'm asking you is to look ahead. And if, if, if the occurrences of these like extreme heat events became a little more regular, like what, what do you think you would start doing differently as as far as preparation or or how you manage things around the operation?
2: Uh, So yeah, the biggest thing would probably be just um, anticipating if I would be doing, if, if we got lots of heat units um, or heat domes, um, I would definitely think of maybe growing something like soybeans because um, they handle the heat a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, also just recognizing where the plant is in its growth stage, just seeing like when the father beans did come up and when that heat did come, the pods were just sitting in. And I, if, if I knew we were going to get that heat and that extreme heat, I think I probably would have hit it with water and just, just try and keep the water on and just try and keep that plant cool. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in the future, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely everything. I don't know. Over the last 50 years, everything has changed too, right? From grandpa's time of farming to, to this, to how we farm now is just, like probably double the yields of of things now right just because everything gets more efficient and and you just learn more too mm-hmm. on how to deal with with uh crazy weather patterns and crazy crazy storms of with water and then yeah crazy heat too so just definitely kind of use it as as it comes and hope for the best i guess
0: uh, well, Mike, I really, uh, I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us about, about those challenges this year. Thanks very much.
2: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate being here.
3: Not, not really. And yeah, it doesn't have to be like super brief. I like chatting about this stuff. So yeah, we'll just sort of see where the conversation goes, I guess.
0: Great. And this is going to be edited, Cam. So. If...
3: Hey, my name is Cameron Bell and I run an operation called Farmer Cam's Foods on rented land in Terrace, B.C., I have a couple staff and we grow about 30 crops for CSA market and some wholesale channels. In the winter I ski and this year my farm flooded.
0: Oh, no, I don't think it'll be necessary. Okay. I really just want to get your kind of anecdotal point of view. Yeah, cool. Uh, one thing Cam tell me tell me about tell me about your farm flooding this year.
3: Yeah, it was a crazy experience. Uh, It flooded on June 3rd, so we were already into our season. We had lots of crops in the ground. Um, Staff were trained up and we were just starting to ramp up market sales. And we had just started our CSA for the year. So it was a pretty serious hit to our operation uh, this past spring.
0: So can you explain a little bit more about the flood? Like, is this something that normally happens? Was this expected? Was it unprecedented?
3: Uh, I wouldn't say it's unprecedented. We would consider this maybe a 20 to 30 year flood. Um, The last big flood was in 2008. And so I didn't think that I'd be seeing something like this this soon. I've only been farming on the land three years. And this is the first time it's flooded since I've been there. Uh, But the snowpack was quite deep last year. And we got about three or four days of really heavy precipitation, especially up in the mountains. And so the Skeena River rose quite quickly over the course of a couple of days. And uh, we flooded on a Thursday afternoon.
0: And so can you describe the the first time you you really saw the effects of the flood right on your farmland?
3: Yeah, so I rent farmland and my landlords first saw the water coming in around the edges um, that morning, say 6 a.m. And by the time my staff and I were down there working around 8, uh, the water was moving across the hayfield and filling up my landlord's garlic patch, sunflower maize, and pumpkin patch by that morning, by my noon maybe. And then around uh, yeah, one in the afternoon, the water came across the road. By that point, I already had about a dozen volunteers helping out. We knew that the water was going to continue rising for at least another 12 hours. And so we started building a sandbag wall around a building we call the Starter House, which is an insulated building that we use for microgreens and seedlings um, in the springtime, especially. So we spent all day harvesting as much as possible and building a sandbag wall and then by say three or four in the afternoon the water was coming up close to the starter house and hitting that sandbag wall we had even more volunteers coming down and we just tried to stay ahead of that water as it continued rising
0: and did you succeed as far as the starter house
3: we did yeah so fortunately um we did manage to keep that building dry there were moments during the day where it was within one sandbag height of the top of the wall but uh we kept building that wall you know an enormous amount of gratitude. We had about 30 people down there throughout the course of the day, and uh, trucks bringing sandbags and loads of sand so we could fill them there on site. And we did manage to keep it dry. We were running a pump as well um, to keep the water away from the building and just continue pumping it to the other side of that wall.
0: And then, what about your, your actual cropland?
3: Yeah. Just about everything was inundated. There was one corner of one field that stayed relatively dry, Um, but I had some peas planted up there anyways, and so fruiting crops like that wouldn't be touched by the water. But biggest concern for me was food safety, because this water had already come through my landlord's chicken pen and a couple other areas uh, with animal activity, um, plus whatever it came through upstream. So I did collect a water sample when it flooded and sent that in and realized that I was well beyond the acceptable thresholds for e coli and total coliform count um, which meant that all of my fresh greens had to be terminated and that's a significant part of our revenue there is salad mix head lettuce spinach arugula um, and and even baby root crops that have edible greens on them so it was a it was a pretty massive hit we're estimating that it was about seven thousand dollars worth of um, impact on both existing crops and the next couple successions over the next few weeks
0: so, Ken, the way you just described that kind of suggests that that it, the water receded and it almost sounds like aspects of your crops were otherwise recoverable. Is that fair to say?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, onions, carrots, uh, zucchini, cucumber, the ones that survived uh, bounced back a few weeks later and we ended up having a, a reasonable season. Um, I sent in tissue samples from the crops that were inundated to test the actual tissue of the plant for E. coli and coliform um, uh, contamination and those came back uh, within acceptable thresholds and so um, any of the long-term crops after you get a number of days of of sunlight and UV radiation on the plants and the water drains out um, then it's acceptable to eat those crops raw again. We did try selling a few things as crops for cooking only, um, but it was a bit of a tough sales pitch at the farmer's market to sell bags of radishes and turnips or green <laughs> onions and tell people they had to be cooked before eating because a lot of people come to the market and they say, oh, ha, ha yeah, wash the dirt off it. It's organic. It's fine. But in this case, I, I needed people to understand that that food could contain high levels of E. coli that could make them quite sick. So if they cooked it, it was fine. And I needed the revenue. So I was trying to bring whatever I could to the market. Um, but it wasn't the same as, as our normal brand of healthy, fresh, uh, you know, natural, non-certified organic food.
0: Cam, did you have any guidance regarding all the food safety concerns? I mean, how did you figure out what you should be concerned about and how you should do the testing?
3: Yeah, um, a couple connections uh, through my friend Jolene with Young Agrarians. She connected me to a farmer named Brianna in Soda Creek, Williams Lake area, who had experienced a flood just a couple of years ago um, and sort and, and kind of gone through the entire process. Um, I, I went one step further. I did contact Ministry of Agriculture as well, and they recommended uh, some testing that would determine whether or not the flood water could be considered irrigation water, because a lot of farms irrigate with surface water and some coliform presence is natural and normal and acceptable. Uh, but I needed to know what the thresholds were for that irrigation water standard. Um, and so by by sending in some samples to an independent lab um, and comparing that with the guidelines I got from Ministry of Agriculture, I was able to determine that all of my greens had to be terminated at that time.
0: This is maybe a, a weird question, but I'm wondering what like what was your primary motivation in having these concerns? Was it worry about your customers getting sick? Was it worry about you getting having repercussions from the law or from regulators, if you didn't do your diligence, like what, what motivated you? I, I guess the reason I'm asking is because as all of this is happening, you've got to be also concerned about your own livelihood. And like almost, yeah. I could just see like the, having to push back against denial, you know, like, yeah. Oh, it's probably yeah. fine. It's probably fine. You know, what's yeah, no, going on?
3: I was, I was scared for myself and my customers. It was, it was the weirdest feeling I've ever had because like most, you know, organic vegetable farmers, I take a lot of joy in wandering around my farm and kind of snacking on everything, just kind of grazing as you walk the fields. And so to be in a position where I was not confident that the food on my farm was actually healthy and safe to eat was a huge concern to me. I mean, we, we do a 30 member CSA. We've got um Between a thousand know, and two thousand dollars a week at farmers market depending on uh, what time of year it is uh, plus the wholesale channels and everything so it's a lot of produce going out the door and and I wouldn't feel good if I didn't know that all that produce was uh, clean and safe to a reasonable degree. Um, we don't triple wash we don't sell things as ready to eat by a grocery store standard but you know I absolutely want to look people in the eye and tell them uh, my manure is aged, my you know pest control applications are organic and natural and and applied at the right time and all of those other concerns that give me a lot of confidence that the customer is getting the, the best product um, so i was concerned about that and in the, in the back of my mind for sure there's liability there's insurance there's legal repercussions but it was primarily just wanting to grow good healthy food for the community and i think it was also about building trust with the customer because i think that the customer ended up realizing how serious i was taking it and when I bounce back from this, they're going to trust me even more because they know that I'm watching out for them when there's something like that happening on my farm, whether it's a flood or another type of event.
0: Last question, Cam. You said this is the first uh, flood on the farm since you've been there farming, and I'm wondering what you, how how this event will will impact what you do in the future. You know, what did you learn, or how can you? How will you change things, if at all, um, in the face of more potential threats like this?
3: A few things that worked well that I want to continue doing were growing microgreens because we grow those in the starter house. We can sell between three and five hundred dollars a week of those. And we were able to continue doing it before, during and after the flood. So that gave us some continuity. We've made some changes on the farm. We've we've created a bit of a berm at one end of the property that should divert some of the water back to the river before it even gets into our production fields. And I think that continuing to do CSA is a great option for me because I could tell my CSA customers I had to put things on hold for three weeks and then we would get back on track. And they totally understood. And if you have to tell that to your wholesale clients or if you have to go to a farmer's market with nothing but microgreens for three weeks that takes a big hit on your customer base but the csa members were there they had our back the whole time and i had money in the bank that i could use to continue paying my staff so that we could continue cleaning up the farm and getting things back on track Um, so there's there's the physical there's the financial and you know I, i learned a lot about some of the mental health impacts of farming obviously it's never been easy but it's never been this hard for me either so it was a major challenge and i think a reminder of how important it is to maintain your your physical and mental health um, throughout the farm season so that when a big event like this does happen, you still feel resilient and you still feel like you can overcome it and continue farming afterwards.
0: Cam, I really appreciate that you took some time to tell us all about this, and I'm really sorry it happened, and I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you got through it.
3: My pleasure, Jordan. Thanks for chatting.
0: Okay, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Okay, I just got to turn down some... You sound further away, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm on speaker. You won't. I'll sound like crap because I'm recording my voice separately. Um, oh, I see. You're you're, right? you're on a nice recorder. So you're- Herman Bruns is the co-owner of Wildflight Farm up in Mara. So, so- Wildflight is a medium-scale veggie operation that mainly focuses on wholesaling and some farmers markets in the region. I got on the phone with Herman to talk about the heat dome and mainly its impact on people, as far as all the people working on his operation in the province. So that could be. One of the driest springs I feel like we've experienced.
4: So we were able to keep water to to most of our crops, but it was hard on the people. Is really what I think was the most the biggest challenge for us is just working through the heat. Um, that that was challenging. Um, we even had to move one of our markets to an early morning, earlier morning market rather than an afternoon market, just because the heat was going to be ridiculous. Um, and, yeah, it just was hard on our staff. Um, you know, then, then, of course, followed up by a huge amount of smoke. I think that really was, you know, we, we just lost several staff people. Um, and that was then, in, and it was really challenging at that time too because you, you couldn't find anyone else available at in mid-season. It just seemed like there were no Canadians responding to any job ads that we put out anyway. So that was where we had to actually um, cut some of our crops, till some of them in, just because we realized we don't have time to deal with them anymore. Um, We're short-staffed and, you know, picking beans is time-consuming, so we'll just ditch them. And that was... A little bit hard to do because, you know, A, you know, that customers want beans and, you know, and you did grow them to the point of picking them, but then you couldn't pick them. Um, And I know that there are other growers too that had to make some decisions like that on crops. They couldn't get to weeding in time or whatever. Um, So it did have an impact, um, you know, those, all those sorts of things. But I think more than anything, it, it just had an impact on, the morale of our staff and our and ourselves, too. Like, we were just dragging ourselves around and trying to get through it. Um, so, yeah, the actual growing part was, wasn't was that bad. It seemed like, you know, it was just like every year has some vegetables because we grow a huge variety of vegetables, and that's one of the advantages of a, a market vegetable farm is that you do have a built-in inser- insurance policy because in any given year, you're going to have some vegetables that love it. If it's a rainy year, uh, it'll be the kales and the broccolis and you know those kinds of crops, and then the cool weather crops, and then you've got other years where there, you've got crops that uh, that those same crops won't do so well. So, but there's always at the same time there'll be some other ones like corn and um, heat loving other heat loving crops that are doing well. So. I think on balance, we probably our are, are, are overall crops balance was about similar for any other year. It was just that I think from our perspective anyway, it was the staffing that was the most challenging part. And even within ourselves, finding the energy to keep going.
0: So Herman, you, you kind of answered this question by zeroing in on staffing challenges and to some extent just uh heat heat the heat dome and how it impacted a few crops although they they kind of bounce back yeah i'm interested in teasing apart on one or both of those um yeah. you know what you think you can't really prepare for ahead of time versus what you might do differently to to um address some of these new challenges in the future
4: uh yeah i i'm not sure that we
0: can do much
4: on the to, you know to, to to adapt to the weather uh, other than maybe beefing up our irrigation a little bit more I mean uh, that I, I would probably invest a little bit more in in uh, some more irrigation pipes so that we can run more lines at the same time and maybe not have to move them quite as often. Um, <clears throat> and then of course the smoke, there's really nothing you can do about that uh, um, that that was that was challenging definitely from a staffing perspective as well. But one thing I did miss earlier is that we did notice when it, it was three weeks where it was really, really smoky, our crops slowed down because they were just basically uh, didn't have enough light. They were in a lack of light situation, and they, were, they would just sort of go into a holding pattern, not grow very fast. Uh, I remember seeing, thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to be able to harvest that lettuce next week. And then I look at it next week, and I think, oh, it hasn't even moved. It's, it's still the same. Uh, And this is middle of the summer. Normally things move along quite quickly. Uh, So a lot of our crops kind of went into a little bit of a pause situation, even though they had everything else they needed, uh, enough water and all that. But the smoke and lack of light was just causing them to sit tight. And then as soon as it cleared up there towards the end of August, then things just took off again and started rolling along at at a normal rate. And uh, so I think with smoke... Um, that's that's a bigger challenge than than heat in some respects. But from a staffing perspective, both of those are big challenges because it's just really hard to to keep your energy up if you've got uninterrupted heat and and long periods of smoke. You can you know you can easily take a day or or a week or two in in stride, but once it starts going on and on and on, it just really wears you down. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean what to do about that. I mean, maybe hiring people from hot climates that <laughs> are used to that kind of thing.
0: And I mean I one know. of our one of our strengths I think as as uh, small scale or medium scale organic producers is that the working environment we can typically provide is is um and it attracts people right like it there's a lot there's just a subset of the population that find it really appealing to go and work on an organic farm but with these newer conditions um it suddenly there's 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 less appealing there's, there's less yeah appealing yeah about.
4: they they get kind of rudely awakened to oh it's not quite as <laughs> as much fun as we thought it was and and it, you know i think that's already there anyway like i know that our a lot of times, our employees come with um, pretty rose-colored glasses on about what, what what farming is like, and then they realize, oh yeah, this is just good, and hard, solid, honest work, and we're not quite prepared for that. Um, but this just makes it that much, you know, that much harder when you get weather conditions like that, like and smoke and, and excessive heat. It just it makes and and then no break in it. I mean, it's one thing to have a normal summer where, you know, you get a two week heat heat period and and then oh you get a you know a couple of good rain showers. And you get one week where it's kind of wet and cool and you can kind of take a break. You know, can stop moving irrigation pipes for a week, which is always nice, and do something else and maybe do some indoor work because it's too wet outside or something like that. But um, this year it was like ah. Oh. There's just no change to anything, and it's just on and on and challenging every day. Um, so I think that just wears on a person, and for sure on people that are new to farming, and you know are already challenged with working, doing the kind of work that we do, which is real work. It's not the same as pushing a pencil in an office or typing on a uh, computer, right? That's almost you know compared to The kind of work we do, it's almost polar opposites.
5: Oh, I just slid down the driveway sideways in a cascade of water with the gator and realized that it's lost a pin somewhere in the last 300 meters.
0: I'm I'm really (laughs) glad. Doesn't that
5: sound like a perfect day farming?
0: The last voice you'll hear on today's episode is Molly Thurston. Many of you know Molly. She's been a guest interviewer on this podcast series, and she's been really active with Organic BC in various ways over the years. Molly is an orchard specialist. She and her partner have Claremont Ranch Organics in Lake Country, and Molly also operates an integrated pest management consultancy called Pearl Agricultural Consulting. Yeah. No, no especially <laughs> especially for uh for this recording it's not so important that we get a studio sound from you. So um, Okay. Oh, good, good, are good, you good. where are you heading to your office or The season
5: you... started off you... uh really with wild weather right from the beginning. So can we Really, well, how would I say, we started the season right away with um, a frost that happened during our bloom in the angio uh, pears. And then also, you know, a relatively significant frost, which a number of my clients had already planted young orchard stock and ended up seeing a fair amount of young tree death or at least um, delayed growth in the young trees. So for our own farm, it meant, you know, our apricot crop was Pretty much frozen off right from the get-go. Um, very reduced crop over what we would normally expect. And then the ancho pears, you know, at first I thought, oh, maybe it's okay, it's a little bit of thinning on the on the uh, bloom. But it ended up actually being a bit of a train wreck at harvest time because the fruit was quite russeted and um, there was quite a bit of marking. So the brown kind of russet that happens during frost um, often is really what's unmarketable it's too pronounced the customers don't generally like it so we ended up dropping a lot of that fruit um, on the ground but then you know things proceeded from there with um, the extreme heat dome um, the extreme hot weather that we had during June meant that we Began our irrigation cycle sort of, you know, probably almost a month earlier than we normally would, and really poured the water to the orchard, trying to keep things cool. And the resulting effects were that a lot of the apples got sunburnt, a lot of fruit just, you know, just didn't develop very well. We had Funny enough, our apricots jumped ahead by at least two, almost three weeks in terms of maturity with the light crop as well as with the extreme heat. They came on well before I would anticipate harvest. The vast majority of them fell on the ground before I even got out there and realized that it was time to harvest. Mm -hmm. The peaches did extremely well. They loved the heat and they got through the heat really well. But the apple's um, size wasn't great the amount of damage and sunburn, which was everything from, you know, like a little bit of extra sort of like an orangey yellow color to black sunburnt, you know, necrotic tissue on the fruit. Uh, Cherries suffered greatly. Unfortunately, a lot of early varieties for my clients, especially those at the border and in the Kootenays were lost completely. The fruit pretty much cooked on the pit during the Heat dome. So, the interior temperatures of the fruit as it got close to cherry maturity were often running, you know, even five or six degrees Celsius warmer than the ambient air temperature. And the fruit stayed warm for longer, which resulted in a really short shelf life for cherries. So, there was a lot of fruit that was abandoned. Some of it even so burnt that it looked like raisins on the trees. The leaves were burnt the fruit itself was burnt Um, those were some pretty extreme effects and then you know there was this whole host of like unexpected effects and things that happened in the season that we really weren't counting on so those related a lot more to pest cycles um, insects in particular some insects really loved the heat and really took off. And I'm thinking about like spider mites in this case, where I have never seen the kinds of orchard infestations that I saw this year, where in the cherry crop in, in mid and late July, the spider mites really took off. They pretty much sucked all the (laughs) chlorophyll out of the leaves, so the leaves started to turn this sort of silvery color. And then there was actually masses of webbing and mites on the fruit itself in some cases. And in my own pears I really noticed this huge increase in rust mites and other types of mites as well so we ended up with even more russeting on top of the frost russet that was caused by the mite pressure in the season and you know mites are one of those pests that have an extremely short reproductive cycle and it's even further shortened uh, meaning more and more generations like like you wouldn't believe just under the heat and also the dusty dry conditions that are often in the field really stimulate egg laying and seem to really drive that pest so that was an unexpected consequence of the heat dome and um, likewise there were several other pests that you know probably had extended generations or more generations of season than we thought or even such that the temperatures were. High enough that we could have gone into like a further generation. And I'm thinking of things like codling moth or something like that, where it's like, you know, it, it really pushes the boundary on that third generation being viable rather than us normally having two generations. So those were some of the kind of effects that we saw. And then, you know, I think overall, we've learned that the fruit actually held up in storage a lot better than anticipated. Um, Fruit that got into storage fairly undamaged has done pretty well. And that was, I think, a really good thing because there was a lot of concern over what fruit would look like at this time of year, but it's actually still looking pretty solid. So thankfully, (laughs) but I don't know what that means for next year. I don't know what it means for buds and stuff either. So that's going to be a big question.
0: Well, thanks Molly. Thank you for that was for that. Just like great summary. <laughs> um, yeah, no I, have, I, I have some follow-up questions, but the first one is how are you, how are you and your family? How are you feeling following a year like this? Like what's, what's your kind of, what, what is your attitude toward farming and your business right now?
5: That's such a good question, Jordan, because, you know, I think this season, this season is hard. I, I feel really burnt out. Um, It was a hard season emotionally for my clients. And it was hard to be a consultant this season, you know, just trying to troubleshoot like what is the next disaster and how do we respond? And it was hard on the farm. You know, I this is the first year in a long time that we walked away from a big part of our harvest. And, you know, at the time, I think I just honestly was a little bit like, okay, I'm just done. Like it's October it's taking us hours to pick a single bin. We're throwing half the fruit on the ground. And I was just kind of done and was like, I'm done. I'm over. But I don't know that the effects of that actually ended in the moment. (laughs) I'm still kind of reeling from having walked away from so much. And, you know, it's, I think seeing all the other disasters this year has given a lot of perspective, um, you know, I'm really grateful that our, our land and our home are are okay, and I I just have felt a huge amount of empathy for the other growers who are dealing with flooding, with landslides, with some of the extensive livestock losses. Like, and yeah, I think it's just been collectively, it's been a really tough season, and it's it's hitting a little harder than it has in other years.
0: So Molly, you know, in the the context of say my own veggie operation, you know, as, as we just face like more and more extremes and challenges, I have the choice to at least attempt to adapt with in terms of variety selection on a yearly basis, Uh, just for example, or to just switch to different crops that I've been growing in a perennial Mm -hmm. situation, like an orchard. I mean, I wanted to ask you in general about adaptability going forward. What are ways, like if you can keep from being so burnt out that you just say, forget it. (laughs) what are (laughs) like how can an orchardist adapt or how are you advising your clients to adapt
5: yeah it's it's such a big part of the thinking and planning process right now because you know we we can't just go and rip out the productive trees and throw something else in and so you know this year it's raised a lot of questions for me in terms of like have i made the right choices particularly on rootstock and variety choice, Um, you know, I've been trying to transition some of my orchard plantings into higher density, shallower rooted rootstocks, you know, that are supposed to become productive in a shorter time span. And I'm actually concerned that if we face continued heat and continued drought in particular, maybe some of those choices weren't the right choices that a deeper rooted Rootstock that trees with a larger canopy that cast more shade over the fruit could actually be better in those situations. So, yeah, I can't change what I've put in the ground, but what I'm forced to do, and I guess with my clients as well, is come up with different strategies for how we manage it. So, irrigation, uh, cover crops, mulching, you know, how do we, a lot of the issues we saw in orchards this year were related to that really high evapotranspiration and water loss and just trying to keep things irrigated so those are areas that we're really focusing on is you know um, I think one of the big things that saved me in in my apples and pears was having a really long cover crop so how do I keep working with that idea and even trying to bring that idea more and more into the conventional world too where a lot of the ground
0: sorry Molly what do you mean by a long cover crop
5: well it was like like knee high knee oh high I see long. like tall you literally mean like <laughs> tall. a tall cover crop? yeah a tall cover crop yeah no I mean one of the things that we you know we fell behind on mowing let's be honest but at the same time then when the heat came on I was really reticent to mow because I didn't want to start to expose the ground and you know potentially have even more heat um, at at the orchard floor. So that was something that actually was somewhat mitigating of the temperature um, extremes this year. So that's something that I want to look closer at as, as a strategy going forward. Um, You know, there's a lot of investment into infrastructure and orchard covers and, um, you know, there's different kinds of netting and shade netting and stuff that also could make a difference, um, but comes at a very large infrastructure cost. So, you know, I don't think those are things I want to write off, but they're definitely ideas that we probably need to look at going forward.
0: And just to touch on the other part of the emotions you talked about, you have a lot of clients, and and I, I you know, emotions were sounds like running high. And I mean, what does that mean for you? You're supposed to be the one that's supposed to like keep the orchard in good shape. I mean, does it? I imagine there's occasional anger. Does it ever go further into like levels of abuse that are just are not worth participating in?
5: Yeah, it does. I mean, I think, you know, when we have, when we have tough years, it brings out the best and the worst in humanity. And unfortunately, you know, this was a a tough growing season coupled with a pandemic that seemed never ending, you know, and it brought out a lot of bad behavior and, you know, I I guess the tool for me is really trying to use empathy and feel for the girls in the situation. But there is a point at which, you know, I'm a service provider and uh, I can't control what happens in the natural environment. And so that is is definitely, I guess, a, a firm, hard boundary for me and and is one that uh, is, you know, has forced me to also reflect on the clientele and and folks that, um, are not able to you know separate their disappointment and frustration with the situation from a personal attack on me it, you know is probably not a client that I want to do business with in the future and so you know I think it's it's been a, a year of a lot of reflection and and part of the difficulty of this season unfortunately is the human element too we all cope in different ways and we all act out in different ways
0: and you're still planning to you know you'll be you'll be you'll be doing full production in your orchard next year?
5: Absolutely. I mean that's the one thing is that as much as I'm disappointed with how, how this year went, I think there's always that eternal optimism that farmers and and producers have that you hope that this year's going to be better and I've got lots of plans for the orchard and I'm not really willing to stop halfway. So even though it uh, it wasn't a banner year, um, you know, pruning will probably start next week for me, and it's time to kind of get back out there and, you know, get back on the proverbial horse and keep going.
0: Well, Molly, you know, earlier you alluded to you know getting burnt out this year and perhaps even still feeling so, and I hope I hope with uh, getting out into the pruning, I hope you rediscover you know the the joie de farming, and I'm sure you will. Um, you know, and anyway, hopefully this episode is partly just so everyone can hear that most of us were going through challenges and whatever happens, we're kind of in it together.
5: For sure. No, and I appreciate that, Jordan. And actually one of the highlights of pruning for me is, is listening to the podcast series. So I'm really excited to hear the other voices and all the different stories and yeah, we are in it together and that does actually bring me quite a bit of comfort, um, on those tough days. So Hang in there, everyone.
0: Great, Molly. Thank you.
5: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. So that about does it for this episode. There's not much more to say. So we'll finish things off with my four-year-old son, Levon, reciting clauses from the Canadian Organic Standards General Principles and Management document. For the purposes of this National Standard of Canada, the following terms and definitions apply. 3.1 Aeroponic Soil free cultivation method whereby plants are suspended with their roots exposed to the air.